Our scripture reading this evening is from the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 24. I want to just read two portions of scripture from this chapter, commencing to read at verse 1. Isaiah chapter 24, reading from verse 1 through to verse 6, and then we will read the concluding verses, that is, from verse 19 through to verse 23. But first from Isaiah 24 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with his master, and as with the maid, so with his mistress, her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled. For the Lord hath spoken this word. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Then verse 19. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro, like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem, and before his ancients gloriously. We end our reading just at the last verse of this chapter, knowing that God will add his blessing to the public reading of his own precious and holy word. Over the past number of months, the minds and thoughts of many leading environmentalists have been focused upon the natural crisis that they anticipate is facing the world at this time. From the renowned David Attenborough to professors of various universities 
The warnings about the pending global catastrophe have been serious, have been stark, and have been sobering. With a united voice, they point us to a period of 10 years before this planet, as we know it, will be irreparably damaged by the commercial carelessness of the world's population. While it is refreshing to observe that such concern is being expressed, the irony is that many of these experts in the field of the environment are among some of the leading proponents of Darwin's theory of evolution, a theory that promotes the ongoing progressiveness of man's intellectual abilities, the physical development of the animal kingdom, and the overall improvement of man's social and economical position. However, it does not take a scientific analysis to recognize the basic contradiction between an evolving world and a dissolving world. Although many, but not all, of these so-called professed experts on the environment are adherents to Darwinism, they do speak, however, in a manner that is consistent with the authority of Holy Scripture, although they are probably ignorant about it. In verse 19 of our Scripture reading, we are told the earth is utterly broken down, and the earth is clean dissolved, and the earth is moved exceedingly. Significantly, the word dissolved means to break off. And have we not seen in recent times the dismantling of the ice mountains in the polar regions of this world? The earth mourneth, as stated verse 4, and fadeth away, and the world languisheth and fadeth away. The evidence is undeniably clear, and mankind is struggling to come up with a solution to the enormity of this problem. Refreezing the Arctic and Antarctic regions, manufacturing artificial trees in an effort to absorb the carbon monoxide gases in the atmosphere, and the construction of a screen in space to protect the earth from the intense heat of the sun, are some of the suggestions that the human mind is promoting in an effort to reverse the serious climatic circumstances facing us at this time. While no one could ever question uh, the ingenuity behind these proposed projects, they are conceived with no thought of referring the matter to the one who is the creator, not only of the earth, but of the entire universe. And that is the challenge uh, that many conservationists are unwilling to face. Uh, for here in Isaiah 24, we have recorded the reasons, the biblical reasons, behind this environmental crisis that we are facing today. Humbly but prayerfully, 
I present to you three observational points that I believe God would want us to concentrate on for a few moments. The first is the disingenuous priests of the compromise. In verse 2 of the chapter, we have the blending together of the priests and the people. And it shall be as with people is so with priests. And then we have the devouring power of the curse. In verse 6, therefore hath the curse devoured the earth. And then finally, we have the divine person of the cross. The last verse speaks to us of the Lord of hosts reigning in Zion. But let us first of all consider the disingenuous praise of the compromise. To some, the focusing upon the pulpit may seem an unusual place uh, to initiate a consideration of the environmental problems of this age. But that is where we are directed to by the Holy Spirit. It is clear from verse 2 uh, that God's uh, honor of distinguishing between the priest and the people has been compromised. There has been the evidence of a discrediting respect. And that therefore brings us to recognize that something fundamentally is wrong in the entire nation. When you look carefully through God's word, you'll find that God has established a divine pattern for the spiritual good, for the social good, and for the environmental good of any nation. It starts with the pulpit. It moves into the home, and then from the home, it moves into society. And the great challenge facing our nation today is that we have so many pulpits in this entire nation that sadly and tragically are not faithful in their preaching of God's precious word. There is no great emphasis on preaching that is prefaced with the words, Thus saith the Lord. But there is a problem. How can a recognized messenger deliver a message from God if he, according to Jeremiah chapter 5, knows not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God? That is why this word disingenuous is so appropriate, in that it means someone with an ulterior motive. Church history has sadly documented many occasions when groups of Bible believers were forged together into fellowships and into presbyteries only to be infiltrated by men who saw the ministry as a potential career and not a personal calling from God. And the greatest threat to our evangelistic existence today comes from career preachers. Preachers who are not called by God to preach the whole counsel of God. 
And that has an effect upon the entire nation. Jeremiah the prophet was told to say, many prophets, many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Significantly, the revelation goes on to point out that this environmental desolation mourneth unto God its creator, which reminds us of Romans 8 and 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. With divine precision, God points the finger at the pulpit as the initial reason why the population of this world have adopted the attitude to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And central to this is the messenger's deprioritization of the message. They have de de deprived the people of the truth with considerable ease. Certain pastors have allowed their ministry to be shaped and to be formed according to the changing fashions of this age. Populist opinion bears heavy upon the heart of the preacher. The illusionary elitism of academia has suffocated the simplicity of the gospel and notions of scholarly professorships have promoted egotism but not evangelism, replacing divine inspiration with defective intelligence. While all the time the righteous perish, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Sadly, many pulpits throughout our United Kingdom have evidently become a platform for personal opinions and topical observations. As precious, precious souls perish in the eternal darkness of a hell that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, that the words of Ezekiel 33, verses 7 and 8 would be permanently placed in my own heart. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel, Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and, and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked man, Thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. It was in full recognition of this solemn responsibility
that the Apostle Paul exclaimed, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. But immediately he sees a problem. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? It's this last question that is of paramount importance. In that God revealed again through Jeremiah, his servant, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran, and I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? And then, please, please, listen to this. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. I fear that the thought of stealing God's word is seldom contemplated. And yet, in the multiplicity of versions that have infiltrated church life, the evidence is all too apparent. But in a spirit that is both subtle and deceptive, the modernizers have declared that they have simply updated the scriptures. But the reality is, dear men and women, they have changed the scriptures. But some will legitimately ask, what is this to do with the natural world? I prayerfully remind you of how we've noted the earth is described as facing desolation, of being devoured, of being broken down, of dissolving. But in verse 5, it describes it as being defiled under the inhabitants thereof. The reasons are set forth. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. I fear at this moment in time it is almost superfluous to overemphasize, to over-elaborate on these divinely revealed principles. The desecration of the Lord's day is a transgression of God's law. The redefinition of marriage is a change in the ordinance of God. The rise of anti-Semitism is an attempt to break the everlasting covenant. Sadly, we could add to these examples a litany of many others, all reminding us of Genesis chapter 6. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And in response to that expression of man's sinful use of God's creation, the declaration was made, my spirit shall not always strive with man. This was evidenced. Whenever God withheld his power from protecting the earth, which led to the catastrophic destruction of the existing environment at that time. I trust. I trust you see the link between the breakdown in man's reverential recognition of the existence of God and the understandable withdrawing of his power. Jeremiah explaining about the earth, he said he hath made the earth by his power, he hath established the world by his wisdom, and hath stretched out the heaven by his understanding. And in Job we read that amazing revelation, he hangeth the earth, upon nothing with all of my heart. I believe that the day-to-day existence of this world depends entirely upon the God of all power, the God of all wisdom, and the God of all understanding. Did not he say to his servant Job, where was thy when I laid the foundations of the earth, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Who laid the cornerstone thereof? The only answer to these questions is found in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. But once, But once man no longer gives glory to God for the heavens and for the earth and openly and publicly rejects the gospel of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, it is inevitable, it is consistent with the teaching of God's word that a decaying creature will defile, will contaminate and will corrupt all that he puts his hand to That is why a God-fearing message must come from a God-fearing messenger to a God-fearing multitude. Then we have this thought of the devouring power of the curse. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth. Without doubt, this is a specific reference to the curse in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord God commanded the man, that is Adam, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. It was a catastrophic moment 
for a sinlessly created man living in a sin-free environment when he violated that graciously delivered command from God. For not only was man expelled from the garden, the declaration was made, cursed is the ground for thy sake. This was the moment when an evolving world became a dissolving world. And yet, embedded in this expression of righteous indignation, we have the unconditional mercies of God. Where did God place Adam? He placed Adam on the eastern side of the garden to expect the dawning of a new day. And in a very practical way, God demonstrates to all of us, even this very day, that as we partake of the fruit of the earth, which he has cursed because of man's sin, yet we still keep before us the thought that in wrath he still remembers mercy. We can only stand back and marvel at how God continues to open up his gracious hand and give and give and give again. Let me please put this to you. If God was to treat mankind the way that mankind treats God, we would be a people without hope. If God treated our nation the way that this nation has treated him, we would have been judged long ago. For thy Lord, if thy Lord shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I come to this important but closing point, and that is the divine person of the cross. I personally do not see any biblical evidence that indicates that it is God's overall plan to reverse the environmental problems of this world. That might be a harsh thing to say. I, I, I noted on Friday or Thursday of last week, many, many school children outside Westminster clamoring for the, a voice to be heard in this very issue. But I say to them, not in a discouraging way, but in a realistic way that I do not see in God's plan a reversing of the environmental problems of the world. In fact, I read in 2 Peter 3 and 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, 
the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And then we're faced with this personal challenge, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Not, not evolving, but dissolving. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And the only answer to that is the person who is in Christ. But again, there's an issue. We have read about the curse devouring the earth. But I can say to you something that is very, very special to my heart and perhaps also to yours that I come to one who has devoured that curse. Galatians 3, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. I find it an overwhelming thought that the blessed Lord Jesus Christ has devoured the curse that should have devoured me. This is the reality of the gospel. It's the message that sadly and tragically many are turning their hearts away from. But the Lord Jesus Christ who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. It's empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draft for me. That is, I draw from it. My dear unsaved one, I know it's easy, as many, many people are, getting caught up and the external things, and I'm not saying that we should be fatalistic or in any way implying that. But what I'm saying to you is this, that you are part of a decaying world. Your body is decaying, and so is mine. And in that habitation there is this soul, that's going to live for eternity, either in hell or in heaven. Dear friend, I can appeal to you to enter into the blessings of his peace 
of his joy, of his forgiveness, of his hope. Because his precious blood has been shed to satisfy the righteous demands of a just and holy God. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. When I came to Sandown Road at the beginning in 1968, a long, long time ago, we had a dear man who came from this area, from Carryduff, a dear man called Tommy Kittle. He was one of our deacons, our committee men. He had one of the most gifted welcomes that one could give to people coming to church. He really welcomed people with a firm and warm handshake. But he seldom prayed. Seldom prayed publicly. And one night he began to pray. And he prayed just a few moments. But this was his prayer. Lord, I thank thee that I'm not on the winning side. I'm on the side that has already won. I trust that you will be on that side. Thank you for listening. I trust that God will graciously apply his word to your heart.